Um, so, a Holy Spirit series. Um, I, I, the, the class that we're going to do, I think we're just going to have to push that to November. How many of you are interested in being, okay, yeah, all right, didn't even need to, all right, all right, all right. Um, so we'll do, we'll start that in November, unfortunately, because we just have too many other things going on. So the first Sunday in November, which is what? Anyone know? I don't know. Whatever it is, we're going to do that. First Sunday in November, we'll do a four or five week long class with the exception of probably we won't, we might not meet during the Thanksgiving weekend, but we'll see. And remember that it's going to cover five things, history of Pentecostalism, theology of Pentecostalism, Pentecostalism, Pentecostalism in the black church, Pentecostalism in the global church, and then Pentecostalism, sort of what do we do from here? Uh, and we will dig quite a bit into um, kind of more of an academic viewpoint on that. Not that you need to read a book. But uh, you will have to come prepared, do homework, things like that. Today's sermon will be a little bit more academic, and so for those of you who like it and enjoy it, maybe this is you know, something that you want to do to dig in a little bit more uh, in terms of the, uh, the class, okay? All right, also for those of you particularly who are adults in our ministry, although if a couple college students really wanted to get together and had something particularly they wanted to share, I'd be totally cool with that. The last like eight of our sermons, no one's taken meaning we just have offered them up to anybody in our body to take them. And so um, I think I posted the sermon series on the Facebook page. And if you're just like, man, I want to take on one of those. They're super specific. They're pretty narrow. And uh, so, you know, talk to me or talk to Leslie. If that's something that you would like to preach on, do an activity on, whatever, uh, I think that could be really great. So, and if it's something that terrifies you and scares you, then uh, that's okay too, um, because most people are terrified of public speaking. So, yeah. And you don't have to technically come up here and speak. You could lead through an activity or something like that. Okay? So, again, all of those are on the Facebook page. The last eight, uh, we don't have anybody. So, Willie's going to be next week, Leslie the week after that, and then the rest of the uh, sermon series, nobody's got. Okay. So, the topic of today uh, is very, very long. The title. I don't even think I gave you the title last week, but who cares? Uh, The Seal of Salvation. All right? Seal is one of those words that's used throughout the scripture to describe the Holy Spirit. Uh, and the Holy Spirit's um, sort of providence over our life. Uh, Seals were very common as masters of the household would give their household seal to any of the people who worked for them so that people would know that when they were doing business, they were an official representative of uh, the household of the master, okay? And so this idea of the Spirit is supposed to be an official designation of us as God's people in whatever business we do, all right? So the seal of salvation... Common analogies or metaphors that are used for uh, the Spirit. Uh, The latter part, though, is the part I want to focus on primarily, and and that's no longer a fight against the flesh. All right, the seal of salvation, no longer a fight against the flesh. Here's what I want you to do, and this is going to be a little bit chaotic, but oh well, it happens, especially when we have so many people in such a small space. I want you to turn to probably two or three people around you. Uh, and try not to move your chairs too, too much. I mean, you know, uh, and I, I really want you to just kind of share maybe some confusions, questions. This is not like a teaching time where you read this one book and you're going to teach the person next to you exactly on, you know, the, what is, you know, exactly happening in this whole spirit, flesh, sin dynamic. But I do want you to just share some just thoughtful, if you have any, if you don't, that's fine, not sharing. Uh, questions, comments, or confusions you have about just the whole idea of the spirit in the flesh. I'm not going to be much more specific. Just the whole idea of the battle between the spirit and the flesh, sin and the spirit, whatever. What confusions, questions, 
Or even maybe just talk about how you tend to think of this. What's the dynamic? What happens with sin, you know, sort of as, uh, as we become Christians? Uh, what's the Spirit's role in that? How does our flesh continue to play a part in our lives? Whatever, whatever angle, whatever way you want to think about this, I just want you to share some thoughts, confusions, or questions. And if you got nothing, you can just laugh and play around and be completely off task, all right? Just kidding, don't do that one. That's a bad one, bad option. All right, and I'll give you like, uh, you know, two or three minutes on this, not long. Go. All righty, so if anybody feels particularly led to share something in regard to something that was shared, maybe some common theme that came out or just something that you felt on your heart might be uh, applicable, then please, now's the time. I keep stepping on Ricola. Has someone got like a sore throat up here or? No, that's... Okay, sweet. Ricola. Things in specific you uh, want to share or, uh, yeah, Tony's got something. You're pointing out something. I don't know if you're allowed to call out other people. I'm not for sure. Tony, do you feel comfortable sharing? Okay, all right. Lorraine always sits in the back and always wants people to speak up. Well, taking high and lofty ideas about sin and atonement and sanctification, all these things, and making them practical was very difficult. We talked about that. There's a lot of great, wonderful, vague Christianese that doesn't actually help make anything more clear, but makes things more vague. Anything else? like already critiquing my sermon, all I gave you was a title. I mean, I don't, gosh, it's a tough audience. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah.
whoa, 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 I've got <laughs> 20 minutes planned for this sermon, all right? This isn't a weekend-long seminar on sin, all right? Gosh. Yeah, I don't know. It's very clear that I don't know. I thought these would be some really, like, kind of light questions, like, you know, how to spell sin, and what's the Greek word of sin, and just kind of throw away my notes, you know? Um... No, so, yeah, uh, just to reiterate for the audio, uh, the idea that, um, you know, that, that we're in this constant fight is a, uh, an idea that a lot of us, or at least some of us, have heard. We'll get to that in just a moment. And so the idea or the title that no longer fight against the flesh seems very confusing. And then how do we treat the body, you know, thinking, uh, not even treating the body, but just how do we think about our body and our flesh? Are we inherently evil? Are we inherently good? And one of the things that you've got to remember when you come to any of these uh, really kind of deeply theological, and what I mean by theological is they kind of get at the core of who God is and what he's doing. Um, You've got to recognize that we've got like 2,000 now histories of people's thoughts and ideas, and we've learned a lot of their thoughts and ideas, even though we don't know we've learned them. Because we've got this church history and tradition, and and depending on where we grew up, people were trained as ministers in certain traditions, and therefore they advocated or emphasized some ideas and ignored others. And so when we come to read the scripture, very few times we're really reading with a blank slate. And that's not necessarily bad because church tradition is very helpful. The fact that some of these arguments have already played out, and we've come to some, well, maybe a consensus, or at least... People have put down their flags and said, this is what my perspective is, but it's just my perspective, can be very helpful for us. But, but like anything, it's also got a downside, and the downside is a lot of us, we tend to come at these topics and think this is the only way of looking at it, because we've been, we've been taught with the force of Scripture, and therefore the force of Scripture tells us this is just what the Scripture says, and there's no real way around it. And as uh, people are moving more and more towards an interdenominational way of looking at uh, theology and the world, we've got to be very careful that we don't back up from studying theology, but rather we go back in with at least a little bit more of an open and interdenominational perspective. We get that from talking through these things with each other. We get it from certainly studying. Um, but that is where Christianity is moving. As Christianity has become less popular in the Western world, uh, people are kind of rejoining across denominational lines, and I think that's a really positive trend. We talked about that I think a couple weeks ago. So let me kind of delve into this, just give you sort of three um, points or kind of primers that I think are important. Number one is in the theological terminology, uh, some of what you guys were describing is what's called an under or over eschatology. Everything's got to be so complicated in theology, like in any academic world. You know academics just make up words, right? If you don't know that, you need to know that. They literally just make up words. Words in academic journals may have an incredibly technical meaning that is literally, the word is made up. One of my favorites in social sciences is operationalization. (laughs) Type that into any Word document and you're going to get a big old red strike underneath it. It's a complex term that basically just means you take a variable and you effectively transfer it over into a survey question or something that you're trying to research. But operationalization? I can't even say it. (laughs) Come on now. So we like to be impressed. I think that's one of the first lessons I learned in grad school when I wrote this really flowery paper 
um, I had the, the privilege of having a professor that was just like, this is a lot of, and I won't really tell you the language that he used, what do you mean? Like, what's the point of any of this? And the more I thought about that, I was like, I think maybe the point of it is I just use as many big words as I could to impress you. Um, <laughs> when it really comes down to it, you know, I'm really very excited about my, my large vocabulary in grad school. And uh, so this, is, this becomes an issue in theology too. Under over eschatology, uh, what it ultimately means, eschatology is just sort of like the future things, how you think about Jesus returning and sort of future age of time. And under over just basically means you don't really think about it enough. You're constantly thinking about life here and all of the struggles and strains. And this is where some of those ideas come up that, you know, well, yeah, we're saved, but we're really going to be saved sort of later on. And right now we just need to sort of trudge through uh, the mundane aspects of life and our sinfulness, and we're sort of barely saved, you know, once saved, barely saved. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, so people go and they get rebaptized and re, you know, initiate their faith over and over and over again because, you know, at any point they could just be struck down if they don't hit the, you know, 51% of goodness rule in their hearts <laughs> that only God can see. That's under uh, eschatology, but there's over, uh, also over eschatology, and, and in some circles it's called triumphalism. This is more common in uh, the Pentecostal churches, uh, and it's the idea that sort of like, well, almost everything good that we're going to get in heaven, we can access now. The fullness of God, miracles, uh, you know, pain and suffering are bad. At its most extreme version, this leads to the prosperity gospel that, you know, God uh, really wants you to be healthy, happy. Uh, and if you're not, then it's a sign of your own sinfulness. And so under over eschatology, I think it's pretty clear that there needs to be a tension between those two. It's just not always clear what that tension should be. However, maybe you can see what kind of background you grew up in, whether it was an under over-realized eschatology. An under-realized eschatology generally means the spirit has no activity in your life. If you grew up in a, a, a denomination where they just really didn't talk about the Spirit of God, that usually pairs well with an under-realized eschatology, okay? Meaning that you, yeah, it's just like, I'm just trudging through, I'm trying to obey the best I can, follow the laws almost, but, you know, there's no real spirit help here, okay? And over-realized uh, over eschatology there's not so many good signs of that. I'll tell you, one of the ideas came from John Wesley and Methodism, and any of you who grew up Methodist, and the idea that we can truly be sinless. Pentecostalism came out of Methodism, and, you know, sort of split, you know, pretty early on, and I'm trying to talk about that a little bit later. Um, but the idea that the Spirit's work is active, and he can do anything he wants to do now, and so our lives should sort of reflect that. I can already see you guys glazing over, and so I'll move on to my next point. The second point is there's really kind of, and this follows from the first, there's two sort of sin perspectives there. You've got the defeatism, which is ultimately like, sin is just too powerful for me. It's just going to always beset me. You know, I'm never going to get, you know, good uh, until the other side of heaven. And then you've got triumphalism, which you already kind of talked about. And that's the idea that you downplay sin and sin's uh, consequences for more of a focus on what, you know, has happened, what's good, uh, and, uh, and anything that's sort of painful or weak or whatever else, God's not working in because God only works in uh, those who kind of have it figured out and have it together. Okay? And then I'm going to make one more primer, and then I'll move into just a few points that I want to make. These aren't really points. I said points. I'm sorry. They're just more like primers, whatever that means. Another great academic word. Um, we have a real misunderstanding of, of the term flesh. That's kind of a cool Greek word, but I can't really say it without sort of 
No, I'm not going to say it. Um, but we tend to think of flesh as having a negative connotation in Scripture. Some of that's because of the Arminian uh, Calvinism debates about inherently sinful and some of these things that happened during the Reformation period. Uh, but I think if you go back and read through flesh uh, as you read through the New Testament, particularly Paul, you're going to see that Paul has a much wider view on flesh than simply a sinfulness. In fact, uh, one of the most popular scriptures when he talks about God manifests himself in my weakness and in my flesh, certainly Paul isn't referring to flesh as his sinfulness, uh, that God is going to work best in his sinfulness, right? That doesn't even make sense. In fact, he argues against that idea in 1 Corinthians and in Romans when he says, so does that mean I should sin more so God's grace can increase? So certainly not. It's a terrible argument, although it has been made. Um, and so the word flesh, we have this kind of misunderstanding. As, as Grant alluded to, some of us have a very Greek understanding of flesh, this sort of matter is evil, uh, and you know, things that are ethereal and you know, spiritual and non-material are somehow better. Okay, That's why you know, uh, a lot of um, baby boomers, their idea of heaven was very unappealing to a lot of millennials. The idea of like, you know, being some baby with wings that's like kind of a baby spirit sitting on some clouds singing songs. <laughs> like that's like really bad. And I can understand how some people would actually think of that as hell, not as heaven, <laughs> if I can be so blunt and forceful. Uh, so... Um, yeah, we, uh, we tend to think about the, the, the body or the flesh as being primarily sinful. But, but flesh in uh, Paul's usage really just kind of encompassed our state of being now, including our personality, our weakness, our strength, the glory of God in our body, uh, you know, compared to you know, the, the world. And um, you know, there's a lot in that, that sort of definition. So one of the things I think is most helpful when you're coming at this is realizing and recognizing what use of flesh uh, Paul is talking about in any different passage he's talking about, rather than just sort of, as a Christian, seeing it as immediately referring to the sinful nature, which often is explicitly talked about as being a piece and part of the flesh, but certainly not the majority thing or the whole thing. All right? Um, not only that, but often when we think about the body as being sort of the, the, the negative place of sin, it's almost like thinking of culture as being the negative place of sin. Uh, people have argued that sin is sort of at the heart of culture, particularly people who believe that you should completely isolate yourself from cultures, that culture is the housing of sin. It's not even within us internally. It's within our cultural values, which is so not biblical, but... Um, again, when you use the term worldly, people tend to think, oh yeah, worldly, it's the world's fault, you know, I'm like this. Um, and I think the scripture both, uh, you know, rejects the idea of sin being located in culture just as much as it, it, it rejects the idea of simply being located in our flesh, like it's this flesh is sin. And actually talks about flesh much more in terms of our will, our heart, and our mind, particularly our heart. As the Bible talks about over and over again, um, you know, sin is a sort of a heart-level thing, meaning that it, uh, it has a lot to do with our passions and our desires, uh, many of which are God-given, in fact, all of which are God-given, uh, and they become sort of, um, they go astray, so to speak. So we've got to redefine uh, that idea. I think with that, we can make two really strong affirmations, and this is what I want to build on this morning. The first one is that the body is good. We talk about that a lot, and that's good. 
but the body is really good. Not only is it good in the sense that um, here it's useful, but actually I very much am of the belief that in heaven we will have bodies, okay? Uh, and, you know, I mean, it's not like the scripture talks just a ton about this. So anything that we say is going to be at some level conjecture. I think there's going to be eating. Better be. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, but we're going to live a bodily existence on an earth, just like this one, if not this one itself, which is probably most likely true. And so the idea that our bodies are going to sort of be destroyed or go away with or something like that, or, you know, we're all going to be thin and fit or something like that, um, or look, you know, like age 25, uh, I don't know, whatever, yeah, I don't know. That's part of that post book that I referenced um, a couple weeks back, that we all stop aging at age 25. I'm not for sure on the details there, okay? Nor am I, you know, really sure that we're going to have superhuman powers. Christians really just want to talk about superhuman powers with their bodies. That, I feel like that, that conversation just immediately leads to, like, am I going to be able to fly? <laughs> In American Christianity, you know, superhuman <laughs> strength and things like that. Who knows? I have no clue. I've actually not been yet. Um, <laughs> but the body is good, and God created our bodies specifically to be good. And so anytime we talk about the flesh or equate the flesh with our bodies, um, uh, we're doing a disservice to God's creation. Plus, we're really not just understanding what sin is uh, when we do that, as if you know our bodies are full of these awful, terrible things, and we just need to beat them. And again, if you don't agree with this or don't understand it, just think back through uh, how much Paul um, fights against asceticism. And for those of you who don't know what asceticism is, it's a harsh treatment of the body. This had become pretty popular during Greek times, particularly the early church fathers, many of which were ascetics, unfortunately. Um, And that's just the downside of their faith. They practiced crazy stuff, you know. Um, trying to beat their bodies into submission. I'm going to talk about that in a moment. But anyway, uh, Paul does not have a low view of the body. He does not believe we ought to treat our bodies uh, poorly. Uh, And not just because they're a temple uh, of God's presence. I I think that idea is sort of like kind of funny sometimes. Number one, when the scripture talks about the body as being the temple of God, it's first talking about the body of Christ, not your individual body. Number two, when it is talking about the individual body, it doesn't mean that, you know, your body is a container that you just ought to kind of like keep for the time being. And then thankfully, when your soul, your eternal soul releases into cloud baby angel wings, your body can strip away in all of its frailty. And it's talking about the body itself as being good, not just as a means to a container for you know, the eternal soul or spirit that you have. And I won't even go into the whole idea of the eternal soul or spirit, uh, which certainly wasn't a Hebrew idea and uh, very much was a Greek idea, and the Christians sort of just adopted that and decided that we had eternal souls. Um, whole other topic, right, for another day. I'm glad Leslie's not here because she'd be giving me looks right now. You can't just say those things and not tell what you mean. People will think that's, they won't know, they won't understand. <laughs> Hi, Leslie, if you're listening to this. So the body is good. Do you have a low view of your body? And I don't mean this in appearance. Too often we talk about the body, we talk about appearance because that's an American idea. No, I'm talking about a whole lot of other things when it comes to a low view of the body. Uh, are you reckless uh, with your body? Certainly that's one of them. But one of the things that uh, I found really helpful this week in our gray matter study as Mia leaves, I'm going to talk about her. Hi, Mia. Um, 
a book that she recommended, just to make this really awkward. Uh, we talked about eating. And one of the things I really liked about uh, the author's perspective is he talks about how one of the ways that we uh, are really harsh on our bodies is we try to con- over-control our bodies through caffeine, through drugs, through uh, lack of sleep, whatever. We're just trying to control our bodies in ways that our bodies weren't meant to be controlled. To me, that's another way of having a real low view of your body, okay? I had a really, really gross analogy I was going to use, and I'm still like, I don't feel like it really transitioned well. Jacob's going to do it. I don't know. (laughs) Here's the thing, man. I feel like I've been too serious this time, you know? I haven't been goofy enough, so just launching right into it. No, I just can't do it. Um, (laughs) But I will tell you that it's related to what I'm about to tell you, but I'm not going to go all the way with the analogy. And uh, I love spicy food. I don't, my, my tongue doesn't seem to, um, you know, tongue and, and my stomach really are in two different departments and have very different ideas about what good food is. And my tongue loves spicy food. My stomach doesn't. And so, you know, whatever. Well, um, for a long time, I've just been popping acid reducer pills. You know, I don't know if you guys have this. I have heartburn, you know, whatever, acid reflux, blah, blah, blah. And I'd pop like one or two pills a day. Uh, popping pills. I like to use that term. <laughs> Acid reflux pills, you know, Pepsi AC. Oh, yeah. Um, and, uh, and I realized actually about six months ago that this was really kind of a harsh treatment of my body. Like I'm trying to, con- my body is telling me, hey, bro, spiciness level has gotten insane. I think your tongue has stopped working. And down here in the stomach department, we are struggling. This is not working for us, okay? And let's just say I had some other signs too, all right? And that's the extent of it. That's all I'm going to say, all right? I'm going to go all the way with it. No, no, I'm not going all the way with it. We know where this is going. So, no. So, um, I tried to stop eating a spicy food. And that was, that was really hard, man, because I love spicy food. But that's one really silly and stupid example of us trying to over-control our body. Sometimes our body is telling us stuff about stress or anxiety or things that are going on, uh, and we just sort of, you know, ah, more caffeine will be fine. You know, less sleep will be fine. And I don't want to get too much into the whole, um, you know, body stewardship. Uh, I was going to call it body mechanics. That's the wrong class. Um, But uh, I think we've got to kind of have a higher view of our body. And so when Paul talks about working in uh, God, working, manifesting himself in our weakness, in our stress, he's talk, or in our uh, weakness and in our flesh, he's talking primarily about God being able to work and all of the parts of our, our body and our mind that we don't always uh, think are very great and good. Um, and, and certainly, um, you know, when, when Paul talks about going without sleep and all these other things, is he treating his bar- body harshly? No, those are the exception to the rule. He's talking about how, in some cases, for the sake of others, he's trained his body, but he's not living continually and constantly like that. So he doesn't have a low view uh, of the body. And that God has the ability to work in that, whether that's personality, whether it is uh, actual uh, bodily ailments and disabilities, whatever that is, God has the ability to work. One of the most important scriptures, I think, particularly for our time, uh, because uh, we're starting to pay more and more attention, it seems, to disabilities or special needs or things like that, is the passage where uh, you know, Jesus simply goes to uh, the man who can't walk, and they ask the question, you know, whose fault, him or his parents? And God says, you know, it's done so, you know, God could have glory. Which, then you think, wait, what? 
God did that to him just so he could like have this little story? That doesn't make sense. Obviously, that's not at all what he's meaning. What he means is uh, that God's going to bring glory from any physical weakness or uh, you know, cognitive emotional illness or weakness we have, which is a really tough thing for us to believe. But it's primarily tough because we have such a low view of the body. We tend to think that if our body isn't, you know, uh, doesn't appear right and doesn't do exactly what we want it to do, then somehow it's not working and it's not good. But we've got to have a, a better understanding of the body being good. And I'm not saying that the, the person is good or that we're morally good or morally bad. Uh, this, this very simplistic and reduced argument that people have gotten into, uh, particularly in the Reformation age, is in my mind kind of a silly argument in the first place. Um, to say that we're inherently evil or inherently good. What, what does that even mean? What is we inherited good, we inherited evil. What? What? I don't know what that means, really. Uh, it sounds like a really good argument, but it's also anytime you choose between two options, and there's only two options, we can say probably there's being something missed or uh, a complexity that's uh, you know, kind of uh, being ignored. So the body is good. That's number one. The second affirmation, and this is, I think, the one that's the harder for us to do, is a spirit isn't at war with our flesh. Okay, guys, that's like saying God is at war with Satan or ever was. He wasn't. And we use war and battle analogies sometimes to our own, um, I guess, yeah, it just doesn't work out well. But, but the idea that God was ever at war with Satan is, doesn't really flow too well from the stories we hear uh, of how Satan works in the Scripture. And Paul is never, ever caught talking about the spirit being at war with the flesh when he's talking about his current, okay, his current spirituality. One of the most confused and, and misinterpreted scriptures is Romans 7. And you can go back and if you want to read that, Romans 7 through 8. I've got two other passages you might want to read through and kind of explore just to test what I'm saying this morning. And that's Matthew 15, 11 through 20 where uh, Jesus says it's not what goes into a man's body that makes him unclean, it's what comes out, because what comes out, it comes from the heart. James 1, 13-15, again, talks about God doesn't tempt people. We're tempted when our desires drag us away, entice us, and ultimately lead us to death. Okay, so that's James 1, 13-15, Matthew 15, 11-20. But go back and read Romans 7-8 through 8 and have a devotional uh, throughout this week, maybe a couple uh, verses at a time. Just try to read through this. Because what's interesting about Romans 7 through 8 is it really comes together. It's in a package like so much of the scripture. It's contextualized. And yet we take two very, very contradictory things from this, this one in the same passage. On the one hand, we love the passage where we're more than conquerors. And, you know, uh, nothing in all of the world can separate us from the love of Christ. That's at the very end of the passage. But at the very beginning of the passage, we take this idea that Paul says, you know, what I want to do, I can't do. And, you know, uh, uh, so because, you know, uh, my sinful nature is always there with me and somehow completely separate these two ideas as if he's talking about two separate realities. But as you'll see in the transitions from one to the next, he's talking about the same stuff. And when he talks about his spirit as being uh, something or his flesh as controlling him, he's talking about his past life. It's very, very clear. In fact, he's differentiating between what life in the spirit and life in the flesh actually looks like. That life according to simply the flesh with no God's work in our lives is a, a life of ups and downs, and it, it, it's worldly standards, it's sometimes I'm good, sometimes I'm not, but that life in the spirit is a completely and wholly other thing. 
And so this idea, and again, I would challenge you to go back through and try to find an instance in context where Paul ever mentions that the flesh is somehow against the spirit. That is exactly like saying, it's a very low view of the spirit, that God is against Satan. Uh, they don't fight, man. I mean, you know, that's, that's not how it works, all right? And if it did, we'd have to really ask some questions about God's sovereignty. Um, this whole dualistic, light and dark, good and evil, again, as much as I want to blame the Greeks, the Greeks had a lot of really wonderful ideas. We have a lot of our great culture and things from them. But they also had a lot of really unspiritual and particularly unchristian, un-Jesus ideas that we just sort of adapted because that's what cultures do with religion. All right? So the idea that the spirit is somehow working constantly against the flesh and, you know, we're just sort of caught in between this battle uh, is something we've got to get rid of. Instead, I think it's much better for us to look at what the Spirit actually does in regard to our flesh. Number one is he's rebuilding our heart, mind, and will. Just rebuilding. Re-giving us desires, desires we didn't have before. Or at least renewing and changing the direction of a lot of those desires. Renewing our mind, making us think fundamentally different thoughts. And eventually, and I think the thing that's generally last uh, to go, but it follows the heart and the mind, is, is our will. And the ability to actually choose these things, uh, which is why when we start with our choosing them without our heart and our mind changing, it can quickly become legalistic behavioral change. But he's rebuilding our heart and our mind and our will to be fundamentally different. Okay? take those things uh, that we tend to think of as natural, which are really God-given, and to turn them into what they were intended to be in the first place, heart, our mind, and our will. So I think a better way to phrase what Paul is talking about uh, than the way we tend to think about it is, and I think you'll agree with this as you go back and read through it, which I encourage you to do and not just listen to me, Um, but I, I don't do what I want to, but now I do which is really what he's saying when he uh, is uh, mentioning this, this kind of fight before the spirit taking over. It used to be, sometimes I would overcome it, sometimes I wouldn't, but in the end, it was just sort of a 50-50 battle, caught in between the two, a tension. But with the spirit of God living within me, now all of a sudden I do the things that I wanted to do, deep down wanted to do. I know we're right. These things are one and one consistently. Let me give you five or six kind of practical ways that happens. He talks in this passage too about the law bringing about sin. And this is a really confusing section of scripture. Like what does that mean? And most of us, because we don't know the law, we don't understand it. Uh, it makes it even more difficult for us to really understand what he's drawing on. Particularly when in one breath he says the law is bad uh, in terms of it bringing death, but then in the other that not even one iota or whatever the King James is, is going to be struck away because the law is still good. So let me tell you why the law is bad according to Paul from Romans 7, 8. Number one is it just helps us identify where we've gone wrong. He talks about coveting. And had the law said not covet, I would have never known it was wrong in the first place. Now, this is a strange argument, and we won't get into the moral philosophy behind it because, well, we don't have time, and that's weird. Anyway. Uh, But the idea is the more we know what 
you know, we ought not do, the more we're just identifying all the things that we shouldn't be doing and realizing that, oh my gosh, we're more of a simple person than ever before. But Paul says in accordance with the Spirit, the more we identify we have done wrong or the more we miss the mark, the more the Spirit has opportunity to teach us about God's character and make us into his image. The law did not have that ability. Because it just identified a whole lot of basic things that you ought not do. But a lot of people had a really tough time connecting those things to God's character and who he was. Because sin at its, well really not at its core, sin entirely is simply missing the mark of the character of God. That's it. That's all it is. It's when we fail to behave or to treat each other or ourselves or the world in a way that's different from the way God created and ordained us to do, the way he, by nature, treats people, treats the world, that kind of thing. That's really sin. And any other definition of sin isn't really a good definition of sin, because that's the one that the scripture gives us. So it helps us, uh, the law identifies sin, but through the spirit, we not only identify sin, we see sin as uh, an opportunity to ultimately figure out God's character and how he's, uh, how he's moving us forward. Now, again, that's where that phrase from Paul that says, does that mean I ought to sin some more? Because, you know, more sin, the more I get to know God's character. <laughs> and that's ultimately the argument that the Corinthian church was giving. They're like, all right, I feel this. This is pretty nice. Uh, no, actually, you know, Paul says, you guys, you sin enough. You're, you're pretty good on that. Um, you don't have to go out and intentionally sin. Not to mention the fact that the scripture does seem to make a distinction between intentional and unintentional, and that's a whole other debate, which we won't quite get into yet, uh, but perhaps later on in the series we will. Okay? I don't think it's, again, near as neat as intentional and unintentional. Oops, I sinned. All right, I'm going out to sin today. List of sins I'm going to write down. Uh. The second thing is the law, ultimately, if we can obey some of it, it just helps us stop a behavior without really any heart change. Stopping behaviors isn't what the Spirit is ultimately interested in us doing, guys. Because if you've got a heart-level issue, which we all do, one behavior isn't going to uh, mean that you, uh, stopping one behavior isn't going to mean that the heart's changed. You're just going to find one other uh, behavior to express that same sinful heart desire. And it's going to go over and over and over and over again. Spirits cuts to the heart. Okay? And so with that heart level change, the the law ultimately doesn't do that. It might stop behaviors, but particularly if I have no idea why I'm stopping that behavior in the first place, which is this generation and sex before marriage, (laughs) um, then I'm never going to really figure out what you know, that kind of heart level change that ultimately reflects God's character is really about. And that's why behavior isn't always a great place to start when it comes to uh, salvation, because I believe that there can be two behaviors that look about the same, uh, but are done for very different reasons, and therefore can be, one can be okay and one cannot be okay. And uh, Paul says this so much when he talks about, you know, not doing things that intentionally cause people to stumble or sin or whatever else. I'm speaking about that somewhat vaguely, but I'm certainly not talking about uh, those behaviors that are obviously no good. But neither am I talking about those behaviors that are obviously no good as being the starting place with a lot of people, because there's heart-level stuff there, and a psychologist knows that much. Behavior change doesn't mean heart change. 
But in Christ, a, a, you know, our spiritual nature gets to the heart of things. So we can quit and stop a whole lot of behaviors that ail us because our hearts are ultimately changing. And behavior might not come immediately, but you know, it, they're going to come as a result of these fundamental changes with our heart, with our passions, with our desires, with the ways that we think. Uh, number uh, three about uh, uh, the law bringing about sin. Most of us will be eventually become defeated with our inability to follow the law and begin to justify it. That's what the law does. We just say, oh my gosh, this is way too hard. <laughs> so I'm probably not going to do it anymore. <laughs> That's what the law brings. When Jesus says that we are supposed to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, yeah, write that into law. That is some scary stuff, all right? But he means it because ultimately it's the spirit inside of us that uh, is sort of hitting in that direction. We don't need to feel defeated uh, when we mess up because we have God's grace. We have that purpose of the spirit inside of us to make good off of the things that we tend to think of as bad. So in the, in the law-type living, we uh, will eventually become defeated and begin to justify. Number four is we often use this as a comparison. And under the law, we often use our sinfulness or lack of sinfulness as a comparison for others. This is where we get to take the speck out of, you know, our brother's eye before we take the plank out of our own. You know, we strain, swallow the camel, strain the gnat. Is that right? Yeah. Pretty impressed. I remember that. It's good for me. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity talks about that grumpy old lady down the hall that just became a Christian but is still grumpy and compares that to the nice, good couple, uh, you know, further down the hall and how it's very easy to see the couple who's good, who, you know, um, maybe had a great background, upbringing. According to worldly uh, standards, they're good, okay? And that that grumpy old lady can't really be a Christian because, you know, she's not near as nice as those, you know, that couple down the hall. Well, the law brings about that kind of comparison. As if somehow, you know, unfortunately Christians have gotten this rap for being goody-goodies. That's partly where it's come from is that we've started to compare ourselves based on behavior. But that's what the law brings. It brings comparisons. And just like Jesus says about our treasure being in heaven, uh, when we fail to let our left hand know what our right hand is doing or when we fail to pray in front of people uh, versus just getting our just reward. When the law and our behavior becomes about comparison, we get our just reward. Oh, you felt good because you're a little bit better than them. Wow, great reward. And that's it. But in the Spirit, the Spirit is going to constantly work with us exactly where we're at and move forward. And we don't have to fake it until we make it in the sense of those kinds of things. We can be very okay and understanding of where we're at. Not like long-term because the Spirit's not going to keep us anywhere really long-term. It's the Spirit's old job to make us more like Christ. But we don't have to get constantly and utterly frustrated any more than we have to just sit there and be like, yeah, this is who I am. No, not really. It's not who you are. It might be who you've been, but it's not who you are. And so uh, the law makes us do these comparison things. I could go on, man. I, I got a long list, but I'll just give you one more because I think I'm right out of time. I don't really know ever. Um, the last one is it, it, it makes us focus on minimums. Minimums in appearance. This is ultimately what Jesus' biggest problem with the Pharisees is that they had forgotten all about the, the, the spirit of the law and began to focus on all these really minute and small things as if that was really what's important. It's what he says in response to them in Matthew 15. It's not what goes in a man that makes him unclean because they had all these rules about ceremonial cleaning. 
and had completely missed the point of what this cleanliness should have been doing in the first place, which is making them clean so that people around them would see their God as attractive. But what it was actually doing was they were trying to be attractive, cut everyone else out, and nobody was seeing God as being attractive uh, you know, from. So it accomplished the opposite thing, which is often what the law does. But the law brings about minimums, where the Spirit of God has every intention of making us perfect. And when we're frustrated with this idea of maybe slow growth or you know, besetting sins that keep uh, you know, getting us down, I mean, you know, that I think in part is why we've got God and why we have eternity with him. The whole idea that we're going to be these perfected creatures overnight when we raise up from the grave, I'm not really for sure where that comes in either. Because I'm not sure that's the picture that's always painted. There are some things we can say for sure and with certainty. I think C.S. Lewis's idea of the, in The Great Divorce where he talks about us sort of in between stages, we're continually growing, but growing in ways that we didn't have the same impediments that we had earlier, early on is, I think, a better way of looking at some of those things. I realize that uh, not a lot of this answers some of the real practical questions we have about this. And so I wanted to open it up for if we have any questions or just responses uh, to, you know, kind of this sermon series. I mean, you know, being able to do this in 30 minutes is uh, not going to cover all of these. But I, I would encourage you to take just this basic idea that our spirit is not fighting against our flesh and go back through the scriptures and, and try to see if you see that. If you don't, we'll have a conversation over That's fine. Uh, but, uh, but I think that uh, you'll find as you read through it, it's at least not as simple as maybe you were taught kind of earlier on. Question, Hannah? Oh, just stretching. Yeah. So questions or a response? It's very relevant, and we'll talk about it in a whole nother series. No, just kidding. Um, but we have a, a day in uh, this sermon series talking about spiritual warfare. Probably sh- we should have done it next week, now to th- think about it, because I think that's a really relevant question. Uh, we will talk about it. And I think, ultimately, um, that the term spiritual war- warfare, like so much battle language, maybe makes us think one way about these things versus uh, maybe the way we ought to think. But I definitely, um, yeah, well, I don't have time to do that one. Is that fine? Is that sufficient to say that we're going to do this in another uh, series and then just not do it? <laughs> it is. It's one of the ones we posted on, uh, on Facebook. So we're going to talk about miracles. We're going to talk about uh, the charisma- charismatic in terms of the give, uh, those gifts. We're going to talk about all kinds of things that are more specific. And we'll do that, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. But that's a great question. Other questions or responses? Yeah, Um, Justin.
God justifies the law of the Old Testament as being a proper revelation of himself, that you can't possibly understand what's come after the law unless you had the law first. Um, and, uh, and that's why Paul talks about not rewriting, wow, rewriting the law, that the law still stands firm, uh, is because it was necessary. And then actually, I think if you think about a person's moral development, um, at least from a psychological standpoint, you see this sort of same thing. You know, we're teaching kids not really principles when they're young. We're teaching them behaviors, right? And hopefully as they get older, they understand principles. It's like, you know, you, you, your kids don't cuss. They're not allowed to cuss, you know. Like all of us adults cussing all the time. What's wrong with y'all? Y'all cuss way too much. Because the principle is that, you know, we don't use it, you know, sort of you know, to be mean to people or rude or in anger. But that just cussing, you know, is fun and exciting. <laughs> just kidding. I'm, I'm, that's a bad example, all right? Yeah, it's just a part of God's revelation and his wisdom. And I think that some of it we just don't understand. Uh, certainly you could even say uh, in ancient history, law-based societies, um, really simple kind of you know, minimal laws were, were important. But there's a lot of, I think, uh, ideas about that. In fact, I'll tell you one of the best books written about that um, is... Uh, Gosh, I can't remember book names or even... I remember authors because it's Ian Proven. It's got the word green in it. Does that help? Can't be too many books that Ian Proven has about being green, right? Yeah, green heart, green spirit, green mind. I think that's what it is. No, just kidding. That's definitely not right. Uh, It's his most recent book that he writes about uh, societies sort of changing and seeing God in ancient Near East religions and things like that. It's giant, man. It's like a taupe. I don't know what that means. That sounds like a color. It is? Well, I think it's also a trope. That's what happens when you try to be cool with words. Sometimes you mess up. You know what I mean? Trope. Any more questions? Thanks for joining us for our sermon podcast. We would love for you to join us on Sunday morning or in one of our small groups during the week. And you can get more information about that at DentonNorthChurch.com.